Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's great to be with each one of you this morning. Today we're finishing our series, Can I Trust My Bible?, with an incredibly important topic. And we see the concept of the ability to know truth eroding in our culture as never before. And I've entitled our message, Your Truth, My Truth, or The Truth. Never in history has there been the current level of confusion about our ability to know what is true or real. I want you to think about that. In 2,000 years, Never in history has there been the current level of confusion about our ability to know what is true or real. The whole area of how do we know what is real or how do we know what is true is called epistemology. It's the theory of knowledge. I want to illustrate a little bit to you. Listen to this little sort of synopsis. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are no snags, it can be very peaceful. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. Now, I just read you a sort of a story or some instructions without any context to frame the sentences. And so, It should have made no sense to you. If you followed me, I'm concerned. That should have been nonsense to you. Now let me read it again, but this time let me provide some context. A one-word frame or interpretive key. The one word is kite. A kite that you fly. Now see if it makes sense. A seashore is a better place than the street because you need lots of room. At first, it's better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it's easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. If there are snags, it can be very peaceful. If there are no snags. But if it breaks loose, you won't get another chance. You see, the context is the only way that that paragraph makes any sense. And in the same way, when it comes to the Bible or theology or Christianity or the gospel or, frankly, any other literature in our culture, once you have the context or the framework, the details start to fall into place. Context is essential to understanding anything, literature, the Bible, all kinds of disciplines in our world. Now, if that makes sense to you, which it probably does, You have adopted a historic view of hermeneutics. means you just believe something. You may not even know you believe. It's sort of subconscious. It's just intuitive. But it means you have adopted a historic view of hermeneutics, which is the science of interpretation. Hermes was a Greek god who served as messenger for the gods. So many people believe this word hermeneutics comes from that. He transmitted or interpreted their communications in sort of Greek or Roman mythology. So hermeneutics is the way we understand the message from God, and it's also the way we understand literature. Up until recently, people approached literature 
with a set of assumptions. And these assumptions existed in both the ancient and the modern worlds until recently. Now, there were some crazy ways of interpreting in history, and eventually they got thrown out. There are people in church history who thought the Bible should be interpreted allegorically. And that would be like, Jesus went to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem represents, and they just make something up. And it was sort of just, they had their feet firmly planted in midair, and allegorical interpretation has not lasted because of that. But for the most part, people approached literature with a set of assumptions. They are the equivalent to the scientific method applied to literature, all right? It's the scientific method applied to literature. Simply put, these assumptions were that truth is knowable, that truth is objective, that as it relates to the scriptures, God revealed himself clearly, people wrote down the stories clearly and accurately in history, and we can apply rules of interpretation to that literature so that even across a couple of thousand years, we can end up with the truth of God revealed to us. Those are pretty basic assumptions, and that makes total sense to most of us. I want to tell you something. You don't live in that world any longer. I mean, the world that we live in rejects what I just said. You probably don't, or you wouldn't be here. I am telling you, we do not live in that world of interpretive assumptions anymore. Now, today we're wrapping up our series, Can I Trust My Bible? And I just want to review a little bit what we've talked about. The probability of God, as opposed to atheism. That we all have an assumption that we can't really prove. Atheists can't really figure out where first cause took place, because something must have started the process if there is no God. And you and I can't explain the infinite sort of eternality of God. We're all sort of stuck on that one. We all have the same problem, but atheists have the same problem we do. We can't explain eternity and first cause fully. Second, we said, is the Bible credible as a history book? And we looked at how the Bible has been accurate in history issues for thousands of years, and how archaeology is, is continuing to prove that the Bible is the best ancient history book on the planet. Third, do we have the originals? Like, do we have the original autographs? The first time things were written down, and the answer is no, but we have the best manuscript evidence of any ancient documents in the world. Things written by Roman, uh, Roman Caesars, things written by Roman historians, Greek historians. We have better manuscript evidence than any other history book in the Word of God. Then we talked about internal proofs of the Bible, that the Bible claims its own inspiration. It claims to be God-breathed. Then we talked about, do we have the right Bible? How do we get the books of the Bible? Do we have the right books? And that there's really not much controversy about that. And then last week we said, is, the, is prophecy real? Or was it just sort of backdated to make it look real? We looked at prophecies that came true after we know we have manuscripts that are older than the prophecies. So it makes sense. All of it points to biblical credibility. I get excited about every facet that we have explored because I absolutely believe in this book. Absolutely believe this is God's message to us and I believe it's provable compared to any other ancient document. But if we live in a world that believes truth doesn't exist, then we've got a problem. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if we can prove this is the most credible book in the history of mankind if, if we don't really believe truth exists or doesn't 
matter or that it can be communicated across history in multiple generations or is actually objectively identifiable. If we don't believe that anymore, we are epistemologically lost. I just wanted to see if I could say that word that way. And I did. I'm gonna give myself a little star. We are epistemologically lost. Epistemology, the study of how we can know what we know. Today I wanna merge several key themes. Two Bible texts, a historical view of interpretation, and current trends in interpretation, which are going to scare you to death as they should. It's why Christianity is in such a confusing place right now. It's why we have deconstructionism, it's why we have progressive Christians, it's, it's all of that. We're gonna talk about all of it. Genesis chapter three, should be the first couple of pages in your Bible there, page two. Genesis chapter three. We're gonna look at basically the first couple of sins. First couple of sins that are recorded in scripture. One that sort of wrecked humanity and the one that just happened a little after that. Genesis chapter three on page two. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made and he said to the woman, Eve, indeed has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden The woman said to the serpent, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Actually, God didn't say they couldn't touch it, but I'll talk about that in a second. So she's getting more conservative than God to just make sure she doesn't do the wrong thing. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, he's keeping the good life from you. Well, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, what men are saying to this day, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. You know, what was I gonna do? Anyway, sorry, a little humor there. Not funny to the ladies, evidently. All right, now skip to chapter four. Cain and Abel. This is the the second recorded sin. It's probably not, it's not the second sin, but it's the second recorded sin. This one didn't destroy humanity. This just one just got his brother killed here. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and she said, I have gotten a man-child. What's interesting is the Hebrew, I've gotten a man-child, the Lord. And we've inserted with the help of the Lord, but it's very possible that she believes that Cain is the promised savior that was promised just the chapter before that the seed of the woman would save humanity. She thinks it's this baby that she just had here. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel and Abel was a keeper of flocks. Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. 
Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. All right, we'll spend a little time on the first passage, and I'm just going to reference the second one later on. First, Our whole broken world and its need and plan for redemption began with disobedience to God's clear command. Now, one of our problems is today we're basically saying that nothing God has said is clear anymore. And we're going to talk about where that breakdown is. So you know the story here. Adam is created by God. He's given one command. They're not told not to touch that tree, but God says in the chapter before, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat, you'll die. So God never told Adam, don't touch it. But I think Adam is telling Eve what God told him and saying, okay, honey, that's probably the word he used to, you know, I do. Okay, honey, we're definitely not supposed to eat from this tree. And I think let's just create a little boundary here, you know. Let's just not even go, let's not touch it. Let's not go near it. We can see it, but let's just, you know, it's off limits. So Eve, we're not even going to touch this thing. Satan comes to deceive her in the form of a serpent. You would be interested to know that scholars would say that serpent and cat have the same Hebrew derivation, and many, many excellent scholars believe this was actually a cat. Just, I'm just saying. So Satan comes to deceive her in the form of a serpent, and here's what he says. God is keeping you from the good life. His threat is not real. You shall not surely die. Disobedience to God is actually the door to your best life possible. You cannot take his word seriously, literally, normally, however you want to cut it. But Eve is deceived. And so she bites. No pun intended. She takes it to Adam, who was evidently not with her, because the New Testament makes it clear that Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Now, in my opinion, and I don't think it takes a lot of conjecture here, Adam did simple math. There is one woman on earth. One woman. She's a source of major pleasure for him. She's going to get kicked out of the garden. Wherever she goes, he goes. So he ate also. As a result, the world was broken. This was one test that God had for all of humanity, whether we would follow him, and the world is broken. The earth is broken. Nature is broken. Our humanity is broken. We now will have physical and spiritual death. We are now naturally separated from God. We now naturally are separated from each other. Until them, Adam and Eve worked in perfect unison, man and woman, meeting each other's needs, caring about each other. Now there's this relational discord, and there's a discord between God and us, and Adam and Eve immediately recognize that they see their nakedness, and they're hiding from God. But in the midst of it, the gospel is promised that the seed of the woman will one day rescue humanity and undo what they have just done. 
Now, a couple of things here. No command in Scripture could be clearer than this. Eat, die. Eat that tree, you will die. And a whole set of interpretive principles are utilized in that determination. They're just automatic. They're almost subconscious. Because what if we've misread Genesis 3? What if God really didn't mean what we think he says? What if we really can't know it? All right, we just assume that we can read this in a normal interpretive method and, and understand it. Because, number two, the fundamental presupposition of orthodox, if I can get number two there, the fundamental presupposition of orthodox Christian hermeneutical theory, and I don't mean theory like we're guessing, I mean it's what we base interpretation on, is that the meaning of a text is the author's intended meaning. Now you'd say, well, Hello, Paul. I didn't come to church to hear that. Well, by the time you're done, you're going to recognize how much this is being undermined. Just this. This is everything. If you remember one thing today, remember this. These two words, authorial intent. Authorial intent. Those two words. You and a Bible and those two words. That's all that matters and you'll mostly be a good Christian. Authorial intent. If you care about this, you'll never be far from the mark or the goal. If you care about this, you'll never be explaining away the Bible so you can fit into culture. A text means what the author intended it to mean. Now, I wanna read something to you about the Nathunkians, a little tribe of creatures here on earth. The Nathunkian Dilemma. Now, this is written in uh, Henry Verkler's book on hermeneutics. You once wrote a letter to a close friend. En route to its destination, the Postal Service lost your message. This would be the U.S. Postal Service. They do that, not the Canadian one. And it remained lost for the next 2,000 years, similar to the distance between us and the time of Jesus, interestingly. Amidst nuclear wars and other historical transitions, your letter's been lost for 2,000 years. One day it's discovered and reclaimed, and three poets from the contemporary Naphtunkian society translate your letter separately, but unfortunately arrive at three different meanings. Well, what it means to me is this, says Tunky One. I disagree, says Tunky Two. What this means to me is, and then Tunky Three says, you're both wrong. My interpretation is the correct one. So you have three different Tunkies 2,000 years from now discover your letter, and they all believe it means something different. As a dispassionate observer, viewing the controversy from your celestial perspective, because now you're in heaven, what advice would you like to give the Tunkies to resolve their differences? We'll assume you have been a fairly articulate writer. You wrote a letter. It's been lost for 2,000 years. Now the Tunkies have it, and they're trying to interpret it. Is it possible that your letter actually has more than one valid meaning? If your letter can have a variety of meanings, is there any limit on the number of valid meanings? If there's only one valid meaning to your letter, what criteria will you use to discern whether Tunky 1, 2, or 3 has the best interpretation? All right, that's basically literary interpretation in a nutshell. You write something, does it have one meaning? Can it mean anything? Are there rules to interpret what it means? That's hermeneutics. That's the process. 
Now, of course, when it comes to the Bible, there's many applications, but there's one intended meaning, and it's what was in the mind of the writer when he wrote. This is not just a Bible issue. It's not just a Bible issue. This is a literature issue. Now, E.D. Hirsch wrote a book, Validity Interpretation. He talks about this. He says, when critics deliberately banished the original author, they themselves usurp his place as the determiner of meaning. And this led unerringly to some of our present theoretical confusions. Where before there had been but one author, one determiner of meaning, there now arose a multiplicity of them, each carrying as much authority as the next. To banish the original author's intent as the determiner of meaning is to reject the only compelling normative principle that could lend validity to an interpretation. For if a meaning of a text is not the author's, then no interpretation can possibly correspond to the meaning of the text, since the text can have no determinate or determinable meaning. All right, I'm gonna put the Neftukian dilemma up here, and we've got, you know, Tunky 1, Tunky 2, and Tunky 3 trying to figure this out, all right? You wrote a letter, you disappear for a couple thousand years, you're in heaven, you're looking down as they're struggling with your letter. Is it possible that your 2,000-year-old letter has more than one meaning? If so, is there a limit to the number of valid meanings? If not, what criteria will you use to determine which Tunky got it right? All right, that's hermeneutics. It's not a Bible issue. It's in legal contracts. It's in employment contracts. It's in poetry. It's in a love letter. You don't want to be misunderstood on those. It's in law. It's in history. It's in literature. The only place where this doesn't apply are places like mathematics and hard sciences where there's no interpretive process. And actually, hard sciences, there's still probably an interpretive process, but math, it's just clear. So now we have, so how have we worked towards the discovery of authorial intent? All right, how do we do that? All right, here's how. Here's the path to authorial intent. This is what people in my position have kind of been trained to do. We might not go through all, they become sort of second nature processes. You've been trained to do this whether you realize it or not, through schooling, etc. The headline words that you'll hear about the path to authorial intent when it comes to the Bible would be literal. We should interpret the Bible literally. But some people look at that and they say, you know what, but there are metaphors, there are stories, there are, there are figures of speech in the Bible. So let's not use the word literal, let's use the word normal. We interpret the Bible like we would normally interpret any literature, all right? So those are sort of headline words, normal interpretation. The process words, the more specific words that you would get training on if you were going to a college or seminary to teach the Bible is historical cultural analysis, contextual analysis, lexical syntactical analysis, theological analysis, literary analysis. Now I'm gonna give you some examples to help you understand why that's so critical and how you're probably doing it, but if you're not doing it, you're just making stuff up and saying God said it, all right? Here's one. historical cultural. I'm gonna read you a verse from the book of Proverbs, really, Interesting verse, Proverbs 22, 28. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. Now, if you don't understand historical cultural issues from the ancient world, you won't understand this. So I am saying sometimes it helps to have some sources outside of the Bible that help us understand culture. I, I am admitting that. 
So that sounds like it's saying, don't change things from the way they've been done, doesn't it? Don't change the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Don't change things from the way they've been done. We should be doing hymns here every weekend because that's what great-grandpa wanted. Now, the next three generations wouldn't be here. Great-grandpa, forgive me. But that's the way it could be interpreted, but that's not what it means at all. Do you think it means don't change from the way things have been done? Or do you think it means don't steal? Or do you think it means don't move ancient road signs? All right? It's, it only means one of them. Do you know what it means? Don't steal. Well, it doesn't sound like that. Well, here's, here's why. We didn't have surveyors back then. Land divisions were marked by stones. And if you wanted to steal part of your neighbor's acreage, you got out in the middle of the night, started moving those stones a little bit over time. They didn't notice, and you just got a bigger piece of land. That means don't steal. If you don't understand historical cultural analysis and you're barking at your you know, child or grandchild with that verse about how things should be the way that we want because we're the old people, you would completely rip that one out of context, all right? Sorry. It means don't steal. How about this one? Contextual analysis, here's a great one, and everybody is not gonna like me when this is over. And it was my birthday yesterday, too. 60 is the new 40. Yeah, okay. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. All right, how many, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hands because you're gonna be embarrassed if I do. A lot of you think that is about a prayer meeting, that wherever two or three Christians get together and pray, God is with them and he is gonna answer. And I am telling you that verse is not about that at all and that most Christians have been misquoting that verse their whole lives. Do you know what the verse is about? that the church should have confidence in judicial matters that the Spirit of God is present when they're making decisions about judicial matters. Do you know why? Because the context is all about resolving conflict. Matthew 18, if somebody offends you, go to them. If it doesn't work, take another person. If that doesn't work, take it to the church. If that doesn't work, you have to kick them out. And then, where two or three are gathered together, where the church leadership is making these decisions, I am there in the midst of them. That's the context. That's what it's about. Now, you can run around and saying that's about how many people have to be at a prayer meeting before God shows up, and I am telling you, you are just making that up. I'm sorry. And, and I'm going to, well, I'll wait for that comment because many will leave when I say it, so I'm going to keep you here a few more moments. Lexical syntactical analysis, word meanings like justify or sanctify or holy. What do those thing, things mean? And in, in ancient languages, many times word order is used to make emphasis of certain things. And so that's important. Theological analysis. Whenever I preach, I, I really try to help you understand what the person understood at that time in history because that's called progressive revelation. Guess what? Moses didn't have a New Testament. So if we're talking about Moses and his understanding of God, it's different than ours. So that's sort of theological understanding, a progressive revelation, the Old Testament versus the New Testament, Israel versus the church, all of those issues. And then there's literary understanding or, or analysis, 
Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some of you think, well, that sounds like a promise from God. I mean, it's in the Bible. Yeah, it's in the Bible, but it's in the book of Proverbs, which means it's just like a wise saying. There's no guarantee. And if you're holding God to that promise, that's wrong because there's also verses in Proverbs that are like, you know, eat an apple a day and it'll keep the doctor away. That's not a promise. Get up early in the morning and you'll be successful. I'm kind of a night owl, you know? What's early to you is different than what's early to me. I don't want to get up early unless I'm going to catch something or kill something. I just don't want to do it, all right? By that I mean hunting, just FYI, in case you're wondering, all right? All right. I just really got to keep in mind that I'm in a different country. Literary analysis. You say, Paul, this is so complicated. Yes, it is. And I got some bad news for you. This is where you might walk out. Scary thought. When you get Scripture wrong, when somebody stands up here and gets Scripture wrong, it is no longer God's Word. Why would it be? If I've missed authorial intent, I'm just taking something out of context. It's no longer God's word because it has been stripped of God's intended meaning because I didn't connect with the author's intended meaning. They started out as God's words, but I'm ripping them out of context and distorting them. If it has nothing to do with its God-breathed intended meaning, just words. Now, I hope that got your attention because we need to be careful with this book as we criticize other people for not being careful with it. 2 Timothy 2.15. There's a warning about this to people like me as Paul's talking to Timothy and saying you need to study to show yourself approved unto God. Ends the verse. Somebody who correctly handles the word of truth. What do you think correctly handling the word of truth is about? It's about this. It's about handling God's word correctly. And I'm not saying I always get it right. I'm saying that's the standard. We need to get it right. Third, and here's where this we should all get depressed collectively. The philosophical and ecclesiastical world are turning their backs on the goal of truth through authorial intent. If you want to understand why church seems so confusing these days and why some churches are seeming to believe some things that we haven't believed for 2,000 years and you know, we thought a lot of stuff was wrong and you can go to another church and they say, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's because of this. And I, I want to just reference the Cain passage, the second passage we read. Because you got Cain and Abel, they're born to Adam and Eve and you got the two boys growing up, and I'm sure there's a little sibling rivalry, you know. They're wrestling around once in a while and competing, and Abel's got some flocks. Cain's a farmer. He's got a little herb garden, and he's also, you know, gardening other things. And, and God demands blood sacrifice because God had trained Adam and Eve that sin needed a, a sacrifice. It's clear that that was in their theological backdrop because in the passage when Cain brings his farmer's market sacrifice to God... God says not good enough. It was clear that Cain knew God wanted a blood sacrifice. What I love about Cain is this. There's like a couple of people on the planet and Cain is already coming to the point which is in modern day Christianity everywhere. God, you're just too narrow. I mean, I don't, you should, I'm bringing a sacrifice. Why does it have to be what you say? You know? 
I'm bringing you something. Yeah, Abel's got the whole sheep thing going on, but they kind of stink. I'm bringing you some good stuff. It's the best of my garden. I'm not like, I mean, I could trade Abel some of my yams for one of his lambs. I, I didn't plan that. Yams for lambs. And then I could give you a lamb, but why would I do that? Because you're the one who's being unreasonable in the first place. I mean, in the, the second sin in the Bible, you got the first deconstructionist. God didn't really mean that. I mean, if God was being reasonable, he would have meant this. There are massive threats to the church unfolding as we speak. Massive threats. Let me explain the religious landscape 50 years ago when, really, truly, honestly, I was 10. All right? So 50 years ago, I was 10. So here's the landscape. Liberals, conservatives. It was easy. The world was simple. Liberals didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the virgin birth. They didn't believe in Jesus' divinity. They didn't believe in his resurrection. This is a book, and everything that's happened in history is based on natural causes. This was just a book to trump up religious sort of fervor for Israel's God. And we can learn some things from Jesus, but he wasn't God. Those were liberals, and we were conservatives. We said liberals are liberals, but we believe in the Bible. It was simple. It was simple. Conservatives believed in all of the orthodox teachings of Christianity, and they believed that truth came through the discovery of authorial intent, the process I described. Today, here's the religious landscape. Liberals, and they haven't changed. They're still easy to figure out. Conservatives, like Pastor Paul, roll your eyes, Pastor Paul, and then this massive confusing middle ground. And it's new. It's the confusing middle where people might follow Jesus, but they reject what the Apostle Paul wrote because he seems to not like women that much, which is not true, but he's an easy target. Or I want to follow Jesus, but interestingly, I don't agree with Jesus on some pretty basic issues about human sexuality and some other things, so I kind of like Jesus, but I think if Jesus were here today, he'd probably state it a little differently. Or I, I want to follow Jesus, but I'm going to attribute to Jesus beliefs he didn't have because I don't believe we can accurately get from the ancient world to today truth. I don't believe we can cross that 2,000 years like the Tonkies and get it right. They question whether the message of Scripture was and is clear on either end, whether the author could have gotten it right, and whether we can actually interpret correctly. The writer may have been too influenced by his culture to really speak for God. That's what we say about the Apostle Paul, by the way, if you don't like him. He was too influenced by his culture to speak for God, therefore we're setting aside things that he said. And on this end, we're imperfect receptors of the message. We should not be confident we know God's message. What happened? How did we get here? Thank you for asking that. D.A. Carson warned of, his, of all of this in a book called The Gagging of God. It came out in the 90s. I mean, it is, I would love for you to read it. I've never read through the whole thing. It's like this thick. Here's what he said. Pluralism is winning. Historically, this all started with what we call empirical pluralism. It means there's diversity in the world. A lot of diversity in Canada. That's pluralism. There's nothing, it's just factual. There's nothing wrong with it. 
But that developed into what we call cherished pluralism, where we celebrated pluralism. We said this diversity is good. And Oz Guinness put it this way, we've reached the stage in pluralization where choice is not just a state of affairs, it's a state of mind. Choice has become a value in itself, even a priority. So we started celebrating pluralism and celebrating our diversity, and then we said, you know what, we're, we're with people from all over the planet, people believe all sorts of things, and that developed into what's called philosophical or hermeneutical pluralism, and that is this. Since we're all so different, Any notion that a particular ideology or religious claim is superior to another is necessarily wrong. If we're gonna get along with everyone in the world, we can't be saying that we have the truth. We can't be saying that we're right and you're wrong. That's where society is. In order for us to value diversity, we have to accept everybody's beliefs on equal footing. Therefore, no religion has the right to pronounce itself true and others false. That's what's happened in academia over the last 50 years, and it is now firmly planted in a church or Bible college near you. The new hermeneutic and its ugly stepchild, deconstructionism. And this is what it is. The old hermeneutic emphasized how science, scholarship, and study could lead to answering most questions and understanding reality and truth. New radical hermeneutics believes that interpretation is subjective and shaped by the culture and subculture of the interpreter. In other words, you can't know, which means we've got whole generations of Christians growing up who are not sure of anything. And they don't believe we can be sure of anything. And they believe that the fact that you are sure of a few things makes you arrogant and judgmental. Welcome to the new world. I used to say I wanted to live to be 100, and I used to pray that. I'm not sure I can take it. Progressive Christianity is a word you're going to start hearing more and more of. Progressive Christianity is all around you in Calgary, and it's seeping into a lot of churches that are historically really, really, really great Bible teaching churches. And you're gonna watch this over the next 20 years, and I hope a lot of them stay true to the faith. Some will, some won't. I hope we do. Progressive Christianity. It's hard to find a definition. You can Google it and try to find definitions. You can't because the leaders of it don't agree with what it is. Do you know why? Because of this new hermeneutic. There are no rules. So you can't find a definition. Some of them sound like liberals. Some sound like us with a few more questions than answers. They have a low view of the Bible. That's universal. Don't really believe that God inspired it the way we would believe God inspired it. Don't necessarily trust it historically, even though we've talked about how archaeology continues to defend the Bible. They reinterpret essential doctrines. They redefine historic terms. They want to, in their heart of hearts, affirm the culture as much as possible and fit in and somehow make Jesus palatable to everything. And because their whole movement is built on subjective interpretation, they're never gonna be on one page. You can't define the movement, because it's basically your truth, my truth, there is no the truth. And if you think you've got it, you're arrogant. A few apps as we close, just to cheer you up a little bit more. Something is true, objectively true. If you go in a courtroom today and they're trying to prosecute somebody for something, you have witnesses, you have the defense attorney, you have evidence, 
You say, well, courts don't always get it right. You're right, they don't always get it right. But they search for the truth. They search for reality, what actually happened. And yes, there are different sides to it, but there's a criteria to get there where beyond a reasonable doubt, they're, they're looking for the truth. And, and beyond, skip the courts that are, you know, have flawed judges and flawed juries and flawed lawyers. That's not an oxymoron. Never mind, never mind. All right. You have flawed, you know, but the Bible, if God superintended the process, we're not dealing with broken humans. Something is true. The Old Testament and the New Testament are full of the concept of truth versus error, true religions versus false religions, teachers versus false teachers, prophets versus false prophets. The New Testament, the Old Testament, they take this stuff very seriously. And, and I hate to say this. I, I should have said this before I even said something is true, objectively true, because I didn't have this one in, in, in the slides. Christianity needs to get more academic. We need to stop basing our faith on feelings and, my, and you know, my, my boyfriend Jesus, okay? We need to get really academic because that's where we're losing. I've always said I'm an intellectual Christian. I know some of you judge me for that. What I mean is this. I'm a Christian because it's true. Therefore, I love God. And start with love for God. I'm a Christian because I believe it's true. And we need to be able to defend to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, this is the truth of God. That's why we follow him. Because you base it on feelings. I can tell you, he's gonna let you down. And then it's like, oh, Jesus let me down. He broke my heart. I don't believe this anymore. That's not why I believe it in the first place. So when he lets me down, I'm like, okay, hit me again. Hit me. I can take it because I believe you're true, and I'll die for you no matter what happens to me. We've got to get back to an academic view of Christianity, and we need to think that way in Sunday school and youth group and young adults and, and Bible studies and, and connecting groups. We need to be able to defend this academically. Second, Jesus regularly corrected faulty views of Scripture. I say this to, to the deconstructionists who want to believe that, you know, hey, you can't really understand anything because the author was so shaped by the culture and we're so shaped by our culture and meaning is lost. Well, you don't have a friend in Jesus because he spent a lot of time saying to people, you have heard it said, they were wrong. I tell you, you know, Jesus was fixing faulty interpretations of the scriptures all the time. That's why he got killed. I mean, his motive was to save humanity, but you know, they killed him because he kept questioning what they had said the scriptures said. The Old Testament law was about 1,400 plus years old before Jesus arrived, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but particularly the Pharisees, were distorting it. Jesus brought them back to authorial intent. He believed in an old hermeneutic. Authorial intent matters. Next. Model good interpretation or we are no better. All right, so I'm gonna pick on my profession and maybe even me. A lot of preachers get in the pulpit, and I'm not saying I don't do it, I'm saying we get in the pulpit and here's what we do. We say a lot of true things, but we misrepresent the text to get there. That's not okay. I, I had somebody preach for me couple years ago, and I went in the office, and I was talking to staff, and they were saying, oh, yeah, it was a really great sermon, and this was the point of the sermon. I'm thinking, I know that text. That has nothing to do with what that text is about. So I had somebody come in and preach for me and completely rip God's word apart, completely distort it, 
and you guys loved, somebody, and people loved it because it was true, but it wasn't true from that passage. That's a problem, people. Now, I'm not saying this so that you roast me every week if you don't feel like I get everything perfect, but we need to be discerning. We don't get to rip the Bible out of context just because we're paid to do it. We need to be accurate. When you get in our little Bible studies or connecting groups or Sunday school or talking to a friend, don't ever ask the question, what does this mean to you? What do you mean, Paul? I don't care what it means to you. I want to know what it meant to the original author. That's, that's where we spawn all this craziness. How does it apply to you? Yes, you can ask that. What does this mean to you? Oh, what did Paul mean when he wrote it? What did Moses mean when he wrote it? That's the right question. Now, I understand it's a little bit of a semantic thing, and I'm being a little hard on you. I'm a little grumpy. Be brave. It's getting ugly out there. All right, so some of you young ladies, if you want a really good person to follow, I, I, I really believe she is. Alyssa Childers does some really good stuff. I believe she's a blogger in, in, from uh, down south there a little bit. And she had an article, Five Ways to Counter Progressive Christianity. And I was, was it an article or was I watching her? I think it was a, it was a bit of a webcast or something. And, and she also has some written stuff. And she says how when she was growing up, she was a church girl. And she, would, she says back then, because she was sort of a good kid, she was called a goody two-shoes. She said today she would be called a bigot or hateful. Back then, because she's not having sex inappropriately, she's a goody two-shoes. Now, because she might say that you're not supposed to have sex before marriage and it should be with a man when you're married, that makes her a bigot, hateful. I mean, the stakes have been, it's ugly out there if you believe the Bible. It's ugly out there. And by the way, the ugly is not coming from the liberals, it's coming from the progressive Christians that are rewriting the Bible underneath our noses. They're the ones who are calling you bigots. It's not just the liberals. And just... They're false teachers. They're just false teachers. Let's call it what it is. And finally, ultimately, we do not get to create a God of our liking. And that's frankly what the motive is behind all of this. I want to love Jesus, but I want it to be a Jesus that I can love and my friends can still like me because I'm never going to say something they don't want to hear and I can be okay with everybody's lifestyle, no matter what it is, and never have to speak truth in anything because Jesus is okay with everything. It's all love and acceptance and their view of tolerance. Here's the deal. We all have the same questions. And frankly, liberals, conservatives, and those in the middle probably all have the same issues with God when we're not happy with him. But I don't get to make up who God is. You know, when I was a little kid, that would be 50-some years ago. Today is a day of honesty. I just turned 60. I'm not lying about my age. Next week, I'll be 41 again, okay? Today, I'm 60. Since 40 is the new 60, though, we're starting at 40 next week, all right? So just so you know, not lying, you know, new 40. All right, with the new 60. Here we go. When I was a little kid, and I went down to Trip Lake to the beach, and we'd slide down the metal slide, you know, and the sandy beach, and they sell all the treats right there in the little building, and there was a big park there, and, and it was great. You know, we'd swim, and 
Then we go down the water slide. And sometimes the water slide, you know, when you get out of the pool, if you haven't been in for a while, maybe you went and got some ice cream, you get back on that slide, your trunks are a little wet, but your legs are dry, and you get on that metal slide, and the sun has dried it out, and nobody slid down the last couple minutes, it's dry, and so you, you start down on it, and, and you just, you don't go real fast, because your trunks are a little wet, but the rest of you isn't. It's just not what the slide should be. So what do you do? You get down there with your buddies, you throw water up on the slide. All right? And then it becomes what? It becomes fast because water is efficient. Then people hit that slide. They're like torpedoes going into the lake. It's like, yay. That's a lot of speed when you're six. But here's the thing. When the slide is wet, once you start, it's hard to stop. When you start this theological slide away from authorial intent, your feet are firmly planted in midair. There's no way to stop. The water's on the slide. You've already said authorial intent doesn't matter. And I read an article this week, Jojo Ruba sent it to me, written by a guy who was talking about once this process starts, a lot of Christians just end up as atheists because they can't land anywhere in the middle because you've given up what matters most. That God has spoken. It is understandable. The author wrote it down clearly. Yes, across culture in thousands of years, but we can understand it. And we can discern the truth of God. We can. And it's our job to do it and to live it. Well, thanks for your patience. We're gonna go a little long today, completely my fault. Everyone else was so good and I was naughty again. Story of my childhood, too. God, we thank you for your word, and we believe it is your word. And my heart is broken for what is going on in the world of Christianity because if I were an immigrant to Canada and wanted to know what Christianity teaches and I went to five different churches, I'm not sure I'd get a common message. So this dilutes your ability to reach a lost world. We have failed. The church has failed. Now, we need to do the best we can to represent your word, but the church as a whole is so confused. And I pray that you would give a great discernment, that you would, that you would just resurrect a belief that you have spoken. It is clear. We can reject it, but what you've said is clear. That you would raise up people to turn the, the intellectual tide against this movement to bring people back to a knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, go online to bethanychapel.com and click come. Thanks again, and God bless you.